I had a hard time this week um, working on this particular passage. Hopefully, it doesn't come across to you as though I had a really hard time this week working on this passage. Um, I certainly seek to be helpful. The, the challenge um, here is we're facing the, this last portion of the narrative of 20, chapter 22, really on into chapter 24, to, to, to land the plane that we've been flying for a couple of years now. Uh, some, some, of the, some of the challenges, the, the narrative structure, um, how to fit which piece where, how to let each element of the story tell its own contributing piece um, without glossing over large portions of nuance, that the Gospels are written in such a nuance to really trigger our minds and our hearts on a number of elements that are taking place. The challenge then to the minister is to not overshare, but not undershare. My tendency, I'm on a spectrum of oversharing. Um, and so uh, I, I don't, I don't want to uh, miss the details that Luke wants you also to see. Um, so the way that, in the end, I had, I had to take out the, the Peter portion, his, his own section of um, his denial. I, just, I, I was going to cover all of that, but I couldn't. It just, it, it, there's too much going on with Peter and how he's contributing to this story. So um, next week, I think what would be planned is to treat Peter's story as a standalone episode, but that too will re-preach some of the things said because it's all working in tandem, but there's just a tricky way to draw your lines. So I drew my line in a tricky place. Look where the text for us this morning really does begin, uh, at least as I could do my best here to handle this section of chapter 22 and the drama that is unfolding uh, in our Lord's life. The struggle of the entire passage, and then where we go from here forward, is located in verse 68. And and we'll treat that um, on its own here in a few moments. This is the centerpiece of the argument of the passage. Verse 68 um, I'm sorry, I already missed, uh, 68 is only a little phrase there. It's really 69. But, and if I ask you, you will not answer, was the last comment of that previous question that we'll get to in a moment. But the heart of the entire argument being 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is the entire argument that is taking place in this passage of chapter 22. The idea of what you're about to look at in the next few moments is a challenge, is a rival of two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of man, the city of man, the kingdom of this world, and there is an enthronement that is about to take place in the kingdom that is of God. And these two kingdoms are in a collision. And they're coming to this climactic moment of their collision that ends in the crucifixion of the Lord. But that statement by Jesus that begins from now on is the statement of where we go from here is the establishment of the kingdom of God. I will be, he says to them, I will be enthroned. And the kingdom of God will last forever.
and the kingdom that you're all working so hard to preserve and to keep is going to be destroyed. That's the heart of this text. You remember, he he refers to himself there just briefly to put it in a kingdom context. The way that he does so is by referring to himself as the Old Testament persona of the man who is to come, who is the king of God. You see the language there, 69, the son of man. You can take time later maybe to go to Daniel 7, and you'll see the language of Daniel 7 there. Daniel 7 is the vision of the Son of Man, who I saw come. And he appeared before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days enthroned him. And then through the vision of Daniel, seeing this Son of Man, who then, Jesus says, from now on, this Son of Man, who you know about, is me. And from now on, I will be enthroned. And they're thinking, no, you won't. Because we've got plans for you. But if you look at Daniel 7, you see, certainly, I don't know how many times he repeats the term everlasting. I'd have to go back and take a look, but it's multiple times. For the purpose of reinforcing, I'm telling you, the kingdom of the Son of God will last forever. This is the collision course of the Sanhedrin, the collision course of the Pharisees, the collision course with all of the individuals here of unbelief in this text, which leads to the crucifixion. These two competing kingdoms. As we walk through the text this morning, you'll notice that Jesus, as advanced here when he speaks to them and they ask him, and then he spins the answers and asks them, he is the only one out of this entire narrative scene who understands this dynamic. You think by now, right? No, no, no. He can't be the only one in the room that knows what he's exactly saying. Yes, he is. Again, you think, well, the disciples, they are slow of heart, slow of understanding. We'll get to that in 24, after the resurrection appearance. He's like, guys, did you remember this was going to occur? I told all this to you when I was with you. Ah, slow of heart. So see, even in this moment, they're thinking, "I, I think they do have the upper hand. So he is the only one in the entire situation who understands how the kingdom of God is going to be established. He, in this moment, if you consider the weight upon the shoulders of Jesus, friend of sinners, he is the only one. He is totally going to be totally and utterly alone. He understands the divine purpose. He understands the divine requirement The purpose is the establishment of the kingdom of God. The requirement is my obedience. How much obedience? Full and complete obedience. Unto what? Death. Death of what type? Death of a cross. He's the only one who understands this. Thus, you can imagine the loneliness of where we go from here. 
So he says to them through the encounters, if you look back in earlier chapter 22, why now you think he prays so earnestly, verse 44, and being in agony, or I'll jump up into 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Again, but in the context of prayer, the divine will is in harmony. Nevertheless, not my will but yours, since our will is the same. It is one and the same will. I want your glory. I want to rescue your people, just as I covenanted you before the world began, that I would do this work. Let your will be done. Verse 43. Here's the loneliness. From now on, the kingdom of God will be accomplished. From now on. The Son of Man will be enthroned forever. But it requires the cup. Verse 44. Now you understand being in agony. He prayed more earnestly. Everybody else there thinks something else. Thus, he is in agony. He's praying more earnestly. And the, the, the idea that, that Luke, the doctor, right, he writes the analogous picture. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground, like he had a gushing head wound. He was sweating profusely. That makes sense. He's in great agony. Why? Because he's the only one there who understands what's about to go down. So then it moves forward that there is a ministering spirit. And we, we, we went through Hebrews a long time ago, the book that is, and, and the first and second chapters. You see angels. What are they? How does he describe them as ministers? Ministers to Christ and to you. So here we have that same theology lived out where these are ministering spirits to him. Verse, um, uh, where did I skip the angel? Uh, verse 43. That the angels appeared to strengthen him, to serve him to be with him. Verse 45, when he arose, he prayed. And he came to the disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. They're broken. They're not still clear on the details, yet they too see him in agony. They do indeed love him. So they too are feeling filled with sorrow at what is taking place. The feel of the garden is changing. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you might not enter into temptation. He knows. Look at verse 53. This is your hour. You know, this is right after his arrest, and we're going to work through the text piece by piece, of course, but just so that you see, he, our Lord, Jesus, friend of sinners, knows what is about to occur, and he's enduring it for you. That is, if your faith rests on him as its soul-saving object, then he indeed is your friend. He is your eldest brother. You belong to him and through him to God, the Father, the Spirit, that indelible mark that seals you forever. Jesus, friend of sinners. So he says, this is your hour. The rising tide in the garden, the, the dark cloud that is descending, that is this language here. 
It's the power of darkness. The power of darkness that began in verse 3, when Satan entered into Judas, and verse 6, he saw an opportunity to betray the Lord. Now, as we walk through the passage just briefly, in this power of darkness, in the hour of evil, there is, don't miss, there are multiple strikes here by Luke, multiple strikes of irony in the passage. And the glaring irony that covers the entire episode is simply this, that the purpose of God is being brought to completion by the very ones who most adamantly are seeking to resist it. We're going to get rid of you. And then he says, "Mm, from now on, I'm actually going to be enthroned at the right hand of God on high. No, you must not have heard us. We're going to get rid of you. Do you see the irony? Those who most adamantly are against the kingdom of God are the means whereby the kingdom is coming to fruition. They think they're smart. They think they're powerful. They think they're outwitting. But they're tools in the hand of God's accomplishments. I have a friend who, when he was young, wasn't allowed to use gas cans. Seems to make pretty straightforward sense not to let young kids play with gas cans. Long story short, kids tend to disobey. Gas can ended up with a burning flame on the end of the nozzle while it wasn't even supposed to be in use. It was poured out, little flame, little flame ran up the can, and now the the nozzle is burning with a flame on it. The thought at that level is, "Uh uh-oh, I better grab that gas can and throw it to get the flame to go out. You know, air maybe, some oxygen, get some wind on that thing, (laughs) right? Right. Don't play with the gas cans. Something might happen that you're not prepared to deal with. Grabs a can and whoosh. Flame already lit. Whole hillside now set ablaze. Fire trucks, so on and so forth. You see, the, the, the thought is there's just a small little flame on that for now. I need to get rid of that small little flame. But the more you sought to get rid of the flame that was like this big to begin with, now has spread into a blazing fire that is burning an entire hillside. This is the irony of chapter 22. We're going to get rid of you. And the way we're going to do it It's to bring you up on charges and see you crucified. Just tell us plainly if you're the Christ. That'll give us enough to get you. And he says to them, from now on. Do you see? No, 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 we're going to throw the gas can. Yes, you are. You're going to throw the gas can. And this is going to be a lighting, burning blaze that lasts forever. 
notice how this irony, though, the thought of, I'm going to get rid of you. We're going to be over you, and so is everybody else. We're going to go back to our power structures as is. Notice how this sense of irony begins to work its way out in chapter 2, chapter 22, beginning with Judas. Look in verse 21 and 22. And like I said, we've got to kind of cover multiple pieces of the text because it's so interwoven with this key theme of the establishment of the kingdom of God. Look at how the irony begins with Judas in verse 21 of chapter 22. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now, again, if you look over into verse 47 then, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? Now, notice the language once again. Jesus at the table, the, the upper room, enjoying Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper. And he is telling them at that very moment, I'm going to tell you a prophetic utterance. A man in this room is going to betray me. And then we know what kind of dispute broke out and things went forward. Fast forward just a couple of hours. And you see him in verse 46. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I told you what was going to occur. Behold, the hand of him who is here to betray me is with me on the table. Wake up. Why are you sleeping? Rise, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, he's telling them, I told you. Wake up and pray. It's about to occur. While he is saying this to them, there came a crowd. Matthew expands. I don't recall. I think one of the gospel writers puts a number somewhere in there. I know Matthew says a very large crowd, I believe is the language from Matthew. I don't know how many people. Uh, I don't quite recall. I probably shouldn't have brought that up since I I didn't reference the gospel to know if they do say a thousand or not. I looked at Matthew, that was a large crowd, many people. And the point is, though, the man Judas is there because I told you he was coming. Stay awake. Because while he was still speaking, a large crowd came and the man Judas was with them. Luke wants us to remember he was one of the twelve. And he was leading them. He drew near to kiss him. And then the language that Jesus uses in his response is why we have to remember verse 69 to be the center of this text. Would you betray the Son of Man? You can insert there. Again, if you, if you go back, they all knew what that was, that imagery was, that he's evoking there and claiming for himself. He is God's anointed king. Is that who you're going to betray? So as you go back there, again, Judas is in this this sense like, I'm going to give him up to you. Jesus says, would you betray the king with a kiss? 
See, Judas looked at the Lord and said, Yes, I would. I am. And we have to ask why, right? Why? We could say theologically multiple different ways of getting there. One critical piece is because Judas is rejecting the kingdom of God. He's rejecting his king and all that his kingdom stands for. Because Judas's kingdom was this world. Would you reject the king, the son of man, come by the ancient of days? Judas, you were here when we healed him. You were here when we raised up that girl. You were here when we healed her. You were here when we reestablished. You've heard me preach. You've heard me refer to the son of man multiple times. Judas, you're one of the 12, Luke like. He was one of the 12. Would you betray the king? With a kiss? Yes. Why? Because my kingdom is here. You recall earlier in the Gospels as we were preaching through Luke that Judas is a thief. He's a liar and a cheat. He was stealing from the money bags. I'll be a good steward. Hand it over to me. I'll watch over it all. Oh, yeah, pass it along. Oh, we got an offer. We got something came in. We're, we're supposed to disperse this to the poor. Oh, yeah, 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 hand it over to me. I'll make sure it gets to the deposit where it's supposed to go. He was a thief and a liar from minute go. Look here in our text. It's the exact same thing, verse 5. And they were glad to work it out with Judas because he's a thief. He's cheap. He's a liar. So let's just have a transaction that requires money. Let's just give him what he wants. He's greedy. He'll do anything for a few bucks. Because the only kingdom he cared about was this one. So he's thinking, the irony is, Jesus thinks that he's going to be enthroned. But the truth of the matter is, I will betray him, and he will be murdered. I'll get what I want. The power structure will remain the same. They'll get what they want, and we'll all be better off. But he has a means. Look how we see that revealed in verse 22. Excuse me, verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. Yeah, it was verse 22. For the Son of Man goes. I will go as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. The irony is on Judas. Christ will go as determined. But woe to the man who betrayed me. The second piece of irony that is just saturating this text narrative, just saturating it. These guys think that they are smart, that they are sharp, that they are way out ahead of the curve. 
that they're about ready to get rid of the biggest nuisance that's ever caused so many problems in their area. And the power structures will remain the same. The temple will go back to the way that it ought to be. We'll be able to sell access to God. We'll be able to stay in power in politics. We'll be able to stay in control of the finances. Things are going to go back to easy street. We just got to get rid of him. The irony then is the second example of them thinking they're so clever is the indictment or the fake counsel drawn together to rebuke the Lord. Look in verse 66, and we'll deal with just this section of the text at hand. Look at verse 66, this sense of, we're the smart guys. We're going to pull this off. Verse 66, when day came, so, so sometime early on, uh, it's, it's, I think it's Mark who has this going on in, at night or evening. So, so we, we, have, we have a scale here. It's early. But, but day has come, as Luke reports. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. So you've got the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. This assembly of Israel. And they led him away to their council. And they said, look, Right? We're going to judge you because we're in power and you're not. So, in your final few moments, give us some real good things to go on, right? Verse 67. If you are Christ, tell us. Just come right out and say it as if this is their first exchange, as if they have not been going against him, unable to refute him for weeks now. One last time. Because we're very clever. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me. But, and here's the clever piece. But, From now on, the Son of Man, there's that term again, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Okay, now track with me. He's just about to turn the table. Put them right in their spot where they're a bit awkwardly embarrassed. Track with me once again just briefly before we see it exposed. If you are, term, the Christ, right? Messiah, all that goes with that. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. If you are him, tell us plainly. Just come right out and say it. Jesus, very cleverly, verse 69. From now on, the son of man, another term that belongs in semantic range to Christ, Messiah, and son of man. This apocalyptic figure, this anointed king of God, this the son of God. They all, they're, they're overlapping. Tell us if you're the Christ. From now on, the son of man. Working in tandem. Conclusion, look at what they say. So they all said, are you the son of God then? We're asking about the Christ. You said that you're the son of man. That only leads to one conclusion. You're the son of God then? And he said to them very cleverly, I guess you just said that I am. 
Do you see? According to their own mocking tone in inquiry, their own line of questioning, Jesus turns their mockery into an unwitting confession. I guess he just said that I am. They know what they're doing in some measure. They know that he's an innocent man. They know that they're doing something wrong. There's a measure of comprehension to this situation. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of Man. I'm not going to say anything about this, but I'll insert this other terminology, Son of Man. So you're going to tell us right here and now that you're the Son of God? I guess you have just drawn the right conclusions. You have, haven't you? I guess you say that I am. You pieced it together. But unbelief just builds upon unbelief. Look at verse 71. So now, again, you'd ask, are they going to repent and believe? Because he just, he just took their arguments and he just spun them around and put them back on their lips as though they themselves have confessed knowing what is going on. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? No, how about I say to this, from now on, based on what is about to occur, the Son of Man will be enthroned. So you are the Son of God? I guess you just said so, didn't you? Repent and believe. No, we're in it too deep. Our kingdom is of this world. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his very own lips. You see, this unwitting confession that he put upon their own lips, indicting them. What are you doing here? Oh, we're an official council. What are you doing here? We're going to condemn you. Are you this? Are you that? So you're actually this? I guess you said so, didn't you? So what are we doing here? Well, we're going to crucify you in the end. That's what we're doing here. We're preserving power, not getting rid of it. Turn to Psalm 2 just briefly. Uh, Psalm 2, because, again, in the line of prophetic utterance, what's occurring right now is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. I just want to read the whole entire thing. This is what's occurring. Tell us plainly, you already know the truth. Do what you've come to do. Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? Yeah, I would. Would you see to my execution as the Son of Man, the Christ, the Anointed? Yes, we would. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You see the irony? We're going to pull it off. Why do you plot in vain? No, you don't understand. We are against you alone. Let me clarify for you. From now on. Your plot, it's in vain. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together 
Rulers, elders, chief priests, scribes, they, they take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Why? Why do they do this? Because they say, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. We will not have you rule over us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You're confused in all your attempts. Don't you understand the irony of what you got going on here? I knew you were coming. I said it at dinner. The one who will betray me is at the table. Wake up, guys. Something's going to happen while you're speaking. Here came an entire crowd. And guess who? Judas is leading them. Oh, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, not for you, but in terrifying voice, he will say to them, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. I'm telling you, from now on, the Son of Man will be enthroned. My holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Tell us plainly. No, you're plotting in vain against me. No, our plot is well thought through. No, it isn't. What about the son of man? Wait a minute. Are you the son of God? I guess you just said that I am. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. You see, that this whole thing is going down. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Let everyone at Redeemer be wise. And be warned. O rulers of the earth, what should we do? What should we do in, in, in Luke twenty two seventy one? Well, we all heard it with our own lips. We all heard it with our own ears. He just said it. What more do we need? Hand him over to Pilate. No. Instead, when they heard it in verse 70, I guess you said it yourselves. They should have turned and heard, serve the Lord with fear. Repent of what's happening. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Instead, they keep him bound, mock and beat him. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath, if you didn't remember what I just said to you a few verses about, about smashing you like potter's vessels... Recall, his wrath is quickly kindled. But if the warning is to fall on deaf ears, some will rise and say, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Back in Luke 22, this is being fleshed out in the folly and idiocy of the council who has gathered against the Lord to say, we are in charge of you, and we have decided to hand you over. Now, 
Jesus' sense of divinity in this passage, that indeed he is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lord's anointed. Takes place, as I have kind of briefly signaled since we've been together already, through the series of prophecies. Luke wants you, the believer, as you read this story, as you read this narrative, to see him as prophet, priest, and king. He is indeed that king who will reign forever. Of all those whose faith rests upon him, he is also that high priest who will give his life for his people. He will be that sacrifice and stand in your place. So Luke wants you to have this threefold office of Christ in your mind. He is my prophet, he is my priest, and he is my king. All three offices in one complete and perfect Savior. And so this narrative is heavy with images, heavy with irony, to scream out to you, look at the nations plotting in vain. To you, believer, this morning, look at the nations plotting in vain. Do you feel its call to join? Do you see yourself getting drug into the kingdom of man? It's power structures. It's calls for success. It's positioning for authority. Do you see yourself getting drawn into that? They're plotting in vain. This is not the kingdom of your concern. At the sake of forsaking the kingdom of Christ. So he wants you to see yet again another beautiful image here of our Lord is his prophetic utterance. He is our high prophet. Deuteronomy 18, and of course we don't have time, but Deuteronomy 18 is this prophetic utterance that Moses gives to Israel. There is one day a prophet who is coming. To him you must listen. Everything he says. And Luke wants you to know it is he. Jesus of Nazareth. How so? Look just briefly at the first of the prophetic utterances you have there, uh, the Passover. Look in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us and we may eat of it. Right? You're like, okay, we will. Where exactly? Right? You got all your stuff, you're ready to roll, and he said, just go do it. And you're like, wait a minute, where? But look why we have this recorded. He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, okay, so, so all right, we're going to go. Where, where are we going exactly in the city? A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. How do you know? We can't text him upon arrival. How do we know the guy with the jar will be there? We, we cannot correspond. He's going to be there. Follow him into the house that he enters. Just, he's going to let us in? Tell him, the master, uh, tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? What's going to happen when we do all that? If we meet him, he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Verse 13 is why it's recorded. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. 
the second piece of prophetic utterance is the obvious one, right, of verse 21. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at hand. Prophetic utterance. That then you move forward, and this is where we'll kind of pick up with our text. That, that, by the way, that wasn't all introduction. Don't worry. Um, but this is the, the, the picture of prophetic utterance. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas indeed was there. So we have, uh, we have our Lord as prophet, son of man, son of God, and Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed, all saturated in every little bit of these events. And so the crowd shows up, and Judas draws near to him. Now, sorry, I, I, I missed one. So right before we get to Judas, there was one other. Do you see it in verse 31? And the reason I skipped it, because we'll, we'll handle this text next week, but verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have everybody here, and he wants to sift you all like wheat. Prophetic utterance. But I have prayed for you. You see Peter's response, Lord, I'm ready to do whatever it takes. I'm going to the green mile. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going the distance with you. Um, no, you won't. And by the end of the night, again, we're reading this as believers, seeing our Lord as our prophet. Moses says, to him you shall listen. To every bit of his word. And of course, you have the Simon episode where he does, and we all know the story. Luke wants you to know, and Jesus told him the story. He knew it. He is our prophet. Then the Judas, Judas shows up, but look at what they say, verse 63. It's very interesting, isn't it, from Luke's perspective? Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him, and they beat him. What is the accusation? Oh, come on. There were multiple. There were multiple accusations. What does Luke want you to remember? They also blindfolded him and kept saying to him, prophesy. Right? Tell us something nobody knows. Tell us, I don't know, maybe some sort of like future statement. Make yourself out to be the prophet. Luke has already written for you, the believer, to read this text and say, what blasphemy. Because I've already seen him prophesy throughout these very events. How dare they say to our Lord, who already prophesied every bit of these events. How about you do one thing for us? Prophesy. What a strike of blasphemy. Look at the childish little comment. Don't prophesy something substantial. Don't tell us something meaningful. It's a mockery. That's why Luke records it. But this one sticks out because you know better. I shown you, I wrote a gospel of certainty that your faith might be firm. I, I, I studied this out. I was there. I recorded the events. I interviewed other people. I bound these 24 chapters together for you so that you know. Look at this mockery. Did he not to you already show himself to be our prophet? 
How dare they? The people's plot in vain. They rage against him. Tell us who hit you. He prophesied all of the events right down to the slaps. And he announced it and he endured it for you. Look where we pick up with Judas just briefly now as we draw our time to a conclusion from our prophet and our king, the Son of Man, verse 48. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray me? Would you betray the king? Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, the question has to be, right, or maybe we ask, why would Judas choose to kiss? That then became kind of what goes on to be called the kiss of death. Maybe you've used that, you know, that was, that was the kiss of death to that situation or to that person. That's where this kind of, that colloquialism comes from. This episode, the, the kiss of death. Uh, and you think, why did, he, why did he kiss him? Instead of walk up and do a whole number of other items, like, hey, I'll tackle him. You guys all, so what's the kiss element here that's going on? Why would you betray me with a kiss? This man kiss is awkward. That's not the comment. That's, that's, that's not, why are we doing it this way? It's, it's different. Why are you doing this? The answer has to be further down in the text because it's hard to say for sure, but it seems to be in our Lord's response in verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers and the temple elders, the guys who are going to be so clever to find themselves confessing his identity right in front of him before they infuriate themselves and turn him over to Pilate. So these clowns in 52 are present who had come out against him. And this is what he says, and it seems to be the reason for the kiss. Have you come out against him? Uh, Sorry, I missed my spot there. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Now, in other words, that seems to inform, if we reach up in the text, the reason why perhaps he would betray him with a kiss. Tactically speaking, uh, he wanted to get the jump. It, it seems to be that he planned for an armed resistance. You know, I'm going to walk out and pledge some sort of friendship. In fact, Matthew records he walks up and says, friend. Of course, he gave them the signal. Hey, when I make this move, make yours. Because he's thinking tactically, um, I'll get the jump. They'll be caught off guard. We will seize them. But, again, the question has to be, why? Why would he have thought that there was going to be an armed resistance in this moment? Why? Because he is still utterly convinced that the kingdom that matters most to everybody is the kingdom of this world. You see, he is still utterly blind to the reality and the meaning of the kingdom of God. This world matters most. They know it, and I know it, and Jesus knows it, and he's seeking power. If we come out to get him, I'm telling you what, 
they will all fight just like any other revolutionary group. One author makes this comment. Jesus is not a revolutionary. You can stop with the sword because he's not about the sword at all. Judas fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the kingdom of God. Who knows what he told them? Like, hey, you guys better grab your good stuff because when we go out there in the garden, I'm telling you, there's going to be a brawl. These guys are really loyal and things are going to go down because we all know that they're in it for the same things we're in it for. They might seem different, they might speak different, but we all know at the center of it stands the same concerns, power, wealth, and politics. And some kid is having a real hard time back there. Now, I have to wind down our time, of course. Um, The unfortunate piece here in this text, as we kind of conclude, and I mean it, we're concluding, is that Judas isn't the only one who thinks this way. He's not the only one who is kind of still struggling along with what exactly are we doing here? Um... The disciples know the kingdom. They know the gospel. They preached it themselves. So they know there is an inverted order when we follow the Lord. And they are dedicated to him. Absolutely, their faith does indeed rest upon him. But the pressure is so high and the moments are so hard, they're starting to kind of stress fracture. And, and, and we're seeing signs of like confusion and, and, and stress cracks, right, in the, in, the, in the structure. Just look at their response, verse um, 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, which is the 12, uh, now made 11, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So see, Judas on some level is thinking, they're going to pull this stunt. I'm telling you, be ready. The disciples seem to be somewhat on that same plane right now, thinking, should we strike with the sword? And then notice verse 50, and one of them Struck the servant across the face. Like, he, he somehow dodged it, but somehow, or he stabbed him this way, and it, it just, he hacked off his ear. Um, maybe he swung, guy ducked, it got him across here. However it was, the ear came off in this moment. Now, notice between 49 and 50, the question is asked and the action is taken. No one waits. Well, maybe the rest of them did wait, and Peter didn't. He didn't wait for the Lord to give an answer. Hey, should we strike with the sword? And Peter's got it. And he's not waiting for like, no, 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 everybody, everybody relax. He's, he's just, I, I, exactly, whack. You know, he, he's, he's in a man of action. I'm just getting in here and I'm getting involved and I'm going to throw down with these people. Um, and the Lord has to then stop him. No more of this. This is not how the son becomes enthroned. This is not his kingdom. Just notice that um, we know it's Peter because John uh, airs this out. Um, Maybe Luke was showing some deference, trying to cover for him. One of us got out of hand. Um, No names. uh, John lets it out. Um, He says in verse 10 of chapter 18, it was Simon Peter having a sword, drew it, and he struck off the high priest's servant's ear. He cut off his right ear. The question is, maybe just for a brief moment, why would Peter be the one to do it? Is there any textual indicators why you'd think, I knew it was him? Nobody had to out him. 
And so has every reader that's read this gospel ever since. Everyone knows it was Peter who took out the sword. Why? I think it's because Peter is still convinced. Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. He's still trying to prove his salt as a disciple. He still in that moment believes, I got this. And so the next episode, I can't compete any longer with whatever's going on out there. (laughs) They, They bested me. My final concluding thought um, with this text, Peter, he's still standing as a man of of self-confidence. He still needs to come off this mountaintop experience to the very, very bottom. Because he's still standing self-confident. You said, I would not do this for you. Oh, yes, I would. Oh, Peter. After this thing goes down, strengthen your brothers, okay? And they took the Lord. But Jesus said, no more of this. Final comment of the text is this. I simply leave this with you. I know I've covered a lot of ground. I'll just draw your attention to this final comment. If you in seeing the two opposing kingdoms this morning, a kingdom that is radically fighting to stay in power and a kingdom that is giving power away. That of pride and self and that of humility and service, these two opposing kingdoms at a total collision course, I simply lay it at your feet to consider. If you are still, at this point, I'd call you to re-examine, are you living for yourself? And I don't say that lightly. I say that philosophically. Like, not like, in the last few minutes, do you feel real guilty about something? I'm asking you philosophically. A priority scale. Are you living for yourself? I'll give you a small little example. Spending all your money on yourself. Striving for power. Again, we're thinking of Judas as an example of an opposing kingdom. If you now spend your energy focusing on your success in the world, your reputation, your accumulation of items, I'm I'm just throwing it out to lay at your feet. Look at the opposing kingdoms. One is crashing to an end. One is from now on going to remain forever. Where do your loyalties through faith lie? Is it to attain power? Or is it to submit to his power? And all the providence that comes with it. Father, I thank you for a few moments to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning. I pray.